If we're only looking at certain metrics of performance, if we're ignoring anything related to race or gender or identity in the entire process, it puts us in a real problematic state because things are not equal as a starting point. It does not make race relations go smoother. It doesn't help people equip organizations and employees for a more global workforce. Um, racial issues are out there. And, uh, and, 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 and perhaps at the most basic level, what we know is that people process one another's skin color in a fraction of a second. So people are seeing it and they're thinking about it. And so colorblindness, telling people to not talk and think about it seems really counterproductive to me. Welcome back to the DEI Podcast. I'm Max Gaston. My guest for today is Dr. Evan Apfelbaum, Associate Professor and Research Director of the HR Policy Institute at the Questrom School of Business at Boston University. Dr. Apfelbaum's research utilizes social psychology, organizational behavior, behavioral economics, and child development to unearth the challenges and potential of diversity. In 2012, Dr. Apfelbaum published an article entitled Racial Colorblindness, Emergence, Practice, and Implications. Since then, he's gone on to produce a number of scholarly publications around racial diversity and how we relate to one another as people. Given his expertise, I was interested in talking to Dr. Apfelbaum about the notion of racial colorblindness and what the implications of that are. We'll talk about Dr. Apfelbaum's research on racial colorblindness and also discuss recent issues involving racial colorblindness and diversity that make his research more relevant now than ever. Here is my interview with Dr. Evan Apfelbaum. Dr. Evan Apfelbaum, welcome to the DEI podcast. Thank you so much for having me. In 2012, you published an article in the Association of Psychological Science entitled Racial Colorblindness, Emergence, Practice, and Implications. Now, when I look back on 2012 in the context of how things were going then in the United States with issues like racism and colorblindness, it sort of feels like the calm before the storm. You know, it reminds me of Ned Stark at the beginning of Game of Thrones when he would always say in this very dark tone that the long winter is coming. Because post-2012, we saw a trend of police shootings and police killings of black people going viral on social media. There was the rise of the right-wing nationalism movement and Charlottesville and Donald Trump as president. And in response to some of that, there were things like the Black Lives Matter movement and the resurgence of the business case for diversity in organizations. And then obviously in 2012, you know, it was before the landmark decision in the Supreme Court uh, on Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard that ended affirmative action, which we'll talk about more later. But with none of those things having happened yet, which seemed to bring race more in the forefront of conversation in America, what was it in 2012 that made you interested in researching topics like race and colorblindness? Well, first of all, thanks so much, Max. And, you know, it's it's interesting because at the time, of course, we didn't know what the future would hold, but we thought that was such a timely moment to be talking about race and colorblindness because of so many events that had predated 2012. Um, and so it is interesting that we sort of returned to this more than a decade later. And, you know, we opened by talking about how timely these issues are. 
You know, it really started in many ways with a very simple anecdotal observation, my interest in colorblindness. And as a social psychologist, what I was interested in was um, this social interaction strategy that white people seem to have when topics of race came up or they were interacting with someone of color. And what I sort of noticed in grad school is that white people would have this strange bend over backwards reflex when race came up where they would almost pretend like they did not see skin color and were acting surprised to notice that, oh, you're black. I didn't even notice that. Um, and the note, I was really interested in this because I saw it frequently. And what I learned as I did more research on it was that it was a very intentional uh, 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 approach to try to be culturally sensitive and make sort of interactions go more smoothly. And as I'm sure we'll talk about, what, what I learned is it didn't really work very well, but a lot of people were doing it. And, and so what later became a much broader inquiry into colorblindness as an ideology, as a decision-making tool, really just started as an observation of how people interacted when race came up. Before we go into the article that you published in 2012, uh, and you were sort of somewhat alluding to this already, but I just want to have you explain for people who might not have a clear understanding what exactly racial colorblindness is from an ideological, psychological perspective. Uh, and if you could just talk about that a little bit. Sure. So colorblindness, the way I think of it, is this racial colorblindness, is this idea that the way to make race relations go more smoothly and to make uh people have more positive interactions across races is to downplay differences, is to look beyond, try not to notice, try not to talk about the uh, differences, for example, in skin color and ethnicity that uh, are in front of us. And so, Evan, turning to the article that you published on racial colorblindness, first, can you just give folks who are listening a general understanding of what it is you were examining in the article and what your findings were based on your and other psychologists' research. And, you know, maybe if you could also sort of tell us to what extent you believe that those findings from 2012 have held up today, given subsequent research in the area. You know, so this article was really summarizing, um, sort of collecting together and summarizing work that touched on this idea of racial colorblindness. And so we looked at evidence across a lot of different contexts from um, sort of everyday interactions among people to how kids are taught in schools, to legal contexts, to organizational contexts. And in each of those places, what we sort of did is we looked at the results of research to see how did people act? How did kids learn? How did organ people and organizations feel when the culture was one of colorblindness? Again, a culture in which people were encouraged to minimize, downplay, or even ignore differences as compared to a culture in which those things were sort of pointed out and celebrated and discussed. And, and that was really the comparison we looked at across those different contexts. And what we saw is a couple things. One, colorblindness was very prevalent in many of these different contexts. But two, um, there were 
really mixed and in many cases, seemingly negative results of colorblindness in those contexts. So, um, for example, in everyday interactions, um, despite the fact that people would try to act colorblind to look less biased to black interaction partners, we found evidence that on average, black interaction partners tended to think that that was more an indicator of bias than an indicator of not being biased when people would not talk about race when it was obviously there. In a school context, what we found is that when teachers and school systems encourage kids to not talk about race and when they connected being culturally sensitive to not talking about race, not mentioning these things, it left kids ill-equipped to actually identify bias when it actually emerged. Um, and, and we looked across a number of different contexts where uh, we, we looked at the sort of the cultural and, and societal implications of colorblindness versus multiculturalism in these settings. Um, and, and how much does it hold up? Well, you know, that's hard to, hard to answer because we don't have um, necessarily the exact studies run a decade later. But what I would say is that colorblindness is still a very alluring idea to many people. And I think it intuitively makes a lot of sense because people want to live in a world that is colorblind. Um, but it's complicated by the fact that people do see race and people do harbor biases in different situations. And so um, telling people, okay, now we're not gonna talk about them or pay attention to them anymore um, can be really complicated for people to act on. Yeah, in the paper, you talk about this belief that some people have that colorblindness can somehow prevent prejudice and discrimination from happening. And, you know, how how that belief is predicated on this assumption that, you know, if I just don't notice race, you know, if I try to ignore it, then they'll somehow be immunized from acting in a racially biased manner. And then you say in the paper that this notion that colorblindness can short circuit bias is epitomized by Chief Justice John Roberts of the Supreme Court, who famously said in a 2007 case involving diversity in a local school district that, quote, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race, end quote. Evan, when the logic seems that straightforward, you know, just stop discriminating on the basis of race, that's how you end racial discrimination, it it feels easier for me, at least, to understand why some people might presume that ignoring race is the antidote to bias in their behavior and in their attitudes. But the research in your paper effectively debunks the notion that ignoring race reduces discrimination and prejudice. Can you just expand a little bit on, on what the research tells us regarding colorblindness as a method for reducing bias and prejudice and, and you know, how... An idea that seems so straightforward is actually proven false. So I think um, what happens is, and my own thoughts have sort of evolved over 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 a decade, is that when we talk about colorblindness, I think what Chief Justice John Roberts was talking about, and what some people are thinking about when they think about colorblindness, is a very very narrow specific thing, which is a very discreet decision of who should be hired in that specific instance or uh, how we should make an evaluation. And 
that is very narrow compared to the much broader way in which I think, and most scholars have thought about colorblindness, which is like the way in which you carry yourself every day, how we think and deal with race almost as a part of our cultural fabric. So how kids are taught, um, how it's the philosophy with which we deal with this issue of race relations. And so, um, you know, and why I think that distinction is so important is because you could imagine a hiring context where it would be completely reasonable to, for example, make decisions behind a curtain. There's like this famous anecdote of, you know, blind auditions behind a curtain in, in an orchestra setting. And the idea here was to mask the gender of the musician so that uh, decisions would be based on, um, you know, the merits of the playing and not uh, the identity of the performer. That is a very, I don't think that's actually, that specific instance is not controversial. What When you start saying that everything should be colorblind, you know, everything leading up to it, well, if we were completely colorblind in sourcing the musicians who would come to that, uh, to that uh, interview in the first place, um, if we're only looking at certain metrics of performance, if we're ignoring anything related to race or gender or identity in the entire process, it puts us in a real problematic state because things are not equal as a starting point. It does not make race relations go smoother. It doesn't help people equip organizations and employees for a more global workforce. Um, racial issues are out there and uh, and, 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 and perhaps at the most basic level, what we know is that people process one another's skin color in a fraction of a second. So people are seeing it and they're thinking about it. And so colorblindness, telling people to not talk and think about it seems really counterproductive to me. And that's a separate discussion than in a very discreet selection decision, should race matter and how much should it matter? Um, and, and I think that's part of why people get gravitate towards this idea, but they're not thinking about the big picture, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's such a fascinating thing to me that something like racial colorblindness as being problematic, uh, that we as a collective society can get that so wrong. And you mentioned this in your last answer and you talk about it in the paper as well. Um, this idea that you know, maybe the most compelling critique of the colorblind approach is the fact that people do notice race when perceiving others. Um, and as you pointed out, you know, the perceptual differentiation of race emerges as early as six months of age. But the other thing that you say in the paper that I thought was really interesting is um, despite the fact that people do see color and evidence suggests that we, you know, can can perceive that very early on, that by the age of 10, colorblindness becomes children's modal approach for dealing with race-relevant situations. Can you just talk about the points you made in the paper regarding colorblindness and uh, academic curricula and how it is that colorblindness becomes the modal approach for dealing with race at such an early age? Well, I think that, you know, teachers and parents, particularly parents of white children, um, but also teachers, are really concerned about trying to be culturally sensitive. 
And sometimes what is coded as culturally sensitive is not bringing up topics that could be seen as taboo. That's one piece of it. I think the other piece of it is that for many white parents, race does not seem relevant to their kids. Uh, we don't think about walking around and the experience of being white um, in the way that uh, a racial minority uh, child may be very aware that they look different in a particular setting and they're thinking about that. And so I think there's a, a, a couple factors that come into play. Um, but, you know, I, I think part of this is premised on the mistaken notion that when we bring up these topics, bad things will happen. You know, my kid doesn't notice race and it's not really relevant to them. So if I start talking about them, maybe I'm going to make them biased or maybe I'm going to make them pay attention to something that they didn't notice yet and they're not ready to talk about it. Or maybe I'm thinking about adult baggage like, um, you know, race related allegations or uh, more controversial and complex adult issues. And I'm, I'm concerned about um, subjecting my children to them. And so the path of least resistance that doesn't seem like it has a lot of costs intuitively to, to many parents is to just avoid this. Um, and I think that's, that is a piece of, of what's happening. What I will say is, I think that is one element that has changed over the past decade. And, you know, we can look in the United States and certainly there are divided views about what should be taught in classrooms um, today, but there are many teachers and classrooms who have integrated more multicultural curricula now. And so I think we do see a, a change uh, in that behavior, um, but it's not to say that there is no endorsement of colorblindness anymore. It's still out there. And um, on, on, on certain sides of the United States, it's, it's staunchly advocated for. Evan, you also talk in the paper about this idea that people who promote colorblindness have been shown to subsequently display a greater degree of both explicit and implicit, implicit racial bias, uh, which suggests that colorblindness not only has the potential to impair smooth interracial interactions, but can also facilitate and be used to justify racial resentment. And I would love for you to elaborate on the danger that colorblindness is not just ineffective at stopping prejudice and discrimination, but that it can actually create more bias in the way that people treat one another. Well, I think, you know, it's a very convenient and simple approach to just say it doesn't matter and not talk about it. And I think that's part of that's part of why it has this sort of allure. Um, again, people would like to many people would like to live in a world in which they didn't have to worry about race biasing treatment um, or access to resources. And so I think it's a principle that spreads because people gravitate to that ideal. I think the issue is that we're living in a world that resources are not equally distributed. Um, and we there are many different forms of inequities and biases exist in the world we live in. And so um, if you tell people you can't talk about race and you can't invoke race as part of your understanding of what's happening, it, you're kind of really hamstringing people's ability to develop more sophisticated 
understandings of what bias could be, what it looks like, or how we would speak out about this. And so, you know, I, I think denying that there are any differences and those differences matter is an easy strategy, but it's, it is not effective. And it really doesn't equip people with the ability to engage in a dialogue about where race matters, how should it matter, how it affects, because you're basically training a generation to say, okay, when this comes up, just be quiet or don't talk about it. Um, and so that is, um, I think, in, unfortunately, making people really ill-equipped to, to, to have these conversations. And certainly when it comes to kids, kids make their own, kids are smart and kids process race far more quickly and, and far more sooner in development than parents, most parents realize. And we have a new research that just came out in the past year that shows that people chronically underestimate how soon in development people actually start to think and process race-related information. And I think, you know, if you don't intervene and tell ki kids what race means historically in the United States or why it's complicated, um, kids will make their own assumptions. Kids will come to their own conclusions without teacher or parental guidance. And some of those things are going to be flawed and maybe they could even be biased. Um, and I think it's being allowed or enabled by cultures that really um, discourage any sort of discussion of race. Yeah, it really speaks to the danger of lacking ample information or an informed perspective on a topic and nevertheless thinking that you're right. Um, and the way that that can really cause harm when you interact with people who just come from a different perspective about that topic. And speaking of equipping people to engage in dialogue, one of the points that you make in the paper is that white individuals, and you mentioned this a bit earlier, white individuals who avoid mentioning race appear more biased in the eyes of black observers than do white individuals who openly talk about race. That doesn't come off as too surprising to me, but I'd be curious to get your thoughts on why that is. I think, you know, when it comes to topics of race and diversity, this is an area where people are very mistrustful. People are really questioning what people really think, what people really believe. And in, in the situations, the context that we've studied this, this doesn't mean you should be talking about race in every situation. I don't want people to misunderstand me. That's really not what I'm talking about. What I was talking about in this paper is, let's take a situation in which race is clearly relevant to the situation. And what happens when somebody does not acknowledge any factor of a, a decision or of a topic um, that is clearly relevant, I think people sort of scratch their heads and say, like, what's going on here? Like, I, that can I trust this person? This is not what I expected. In, in this particular instance here, we made race highly relevant to a decision-making task. That's how we designed it. And we just, what we did is we showed uh, a, a large group of Black participants, different people engaging in this decision-making task who either decided to bring up race or not. And what we found is that, um, you know, Black observers felt much more comfortable and thought the, 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 the individuals who brought up race were less likely to be prejudiced because they talked about something that was clearly relevant to this decision-making task. 
the ones who didn't were sort of feeding into this concern about mistrust, because why wouldn't you be bringing this up if it's so obviously relevant here? And so, again, I think the interesting piece of this is that many of the people who didn't bring it up, I wouldn't categorize those individuals as racist, but they are picking a bad strategy in many cases to try to signal um, that they are sensitive in this context. Evan, I want to shift to talking a bit about the recent affirmative action decision in Students for Fair Admissions. One of the points that you made in the paper that I thought was really fascinating, you say that whereas legal arguments for colorblindness were once emblematic of the fight for equal opportunity among racial minorities marginalized by openly discriminatory practices, they have become increasingly geared toward combating race-conscious policies. And then you go on to say that if racial minority status confers an advantage in hiring, in school admissions, in the drawing of voting districts, and in the selection of government subcontractors, then the argument goes that whites' right for equal protection may be violated. And it's just remarkable to me that you were able to identify this shift happening in how equal opportunity is viewed as early as 10 years ago. You know, as as you know, Justice John Roberts uh, recently authored the majority opinion in Students for Fair Admissions v. Harvard, where relying on the same belief in colorblindness that you talk about in your research, the court found that affirmative action violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and that rather than being race conscious, the Constitution requires us to be colorblind with respect to race. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on the Supreme Court's affirmative action ruling and this shift in legal argumentation that you describe where colorblindness at one point was used in the law to fight for equal opportunity among racial minorities, but now is seemingly being used as a sword to attack race-conscious policies that look to address present-day and historical inequities that are related to race. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that book is still being written in terms of how things will play out. I think, um, and I think the next domain where I'm looking to see what will happen will be legislation around DEI programs and organizations um, and the legality of very similar sorts of programs there. You know, I think I'm going to bring it back again to the divide, the, the, the distinction between a decision and everything else aside from that specific selection decision. I think what I think about when I hear this is that, well, universities um, are going to have to be thinking very carefully. And this is what I've talked with when I've talked to university leadership about this, about the earlier stage processes that deal with increasing the diversity of the pool, with making sure that uh, people within the university understand the value uh, of diversity, making sure that they know how they can reach out to underrepresented communities or uh, colleges uh, that can bring in people who may not normally apply and figure out what those obstacles are because I think what this does is this shifts a lot of pressure on making sure the pool is diverse and that the processes around the decision making uh, will be fair. Because, um, you know, I, I think while this 
certainly suggests that race can't be a factor in the final decision, again, which is the simplistic way of thinking about colorblindness, it really says, does not say that a lot of the processes leading up to that need to be multicultural or processes that really take great care to make sure diversity is embraced. And again, we will see how that plays out um, as we move forward. Uh, but I, I, I'll be looking at this just as you are. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, if you think about the case law around affirmative action leading up to students for fair admissions, uh, you know, in the 1960s, affirmative action came about because the equal, um, it was through the fight for civil rights that the Equal um, Employment Opportunity Commission really came to, it came into existence. Um, and part of the goal of affirmative action at that time was there was a significant need to correct historical injustice. But when you look at the way that the case law manifests itself and how it moved forward, um, what's interesting is if you go back to the 1978 case of um, Regents of University of California v. Baki, that was a decision where people like Justice John Marshall, who were advocating for affirmative action as a useful tool to support um, correcting historical injustice, that argument really wasn't wasn't the one that won the day. The argument that eventually made its way into the prevailing case law was that of Justice Justice Powell, where he was saying that affirmative action was useful as a mechanism to confer the overall benefit of diversity to everyone. And I think that this is a really interesting distinction, not to say that either one is more valuable than the other, but just recognizing that affirmative action isn't necessarily something that is exclusively for the correction of historical injustice, but that everyone benefits from diversity. And that's an educational component that we can confer through a process like affirmative action. And I'd just be curious to know if you have any perspective on the actual value of diversity itself as an educational tool, especially given the conversation that we've been having about uh, maybe the problems that can come up when people struggle with being able to engage in dialogue about race. Well, I think that argument really matches up well with a lot of uh, the data that's out there. So when we look at the literature on what effect does diversity in group context have on, for example, decision making, you know, a lot of times what we hear is this, this kind of the, the common narrative is like, OK, well, we need diversity because different others will bring different perspectives. Like the idea is like somebody who looks different or comes from a different place that's going to be a one-to-one -one, uh, 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 translation to a totally different perspective. Now, that may happen, but actually when we look at the data, what's super fascinating is that sometimes the biggest effect of introducing diversity is on everyone else. And the fact that in the presence of diversity, it pinches people to sort of think differently. I'll give you one quick example. Um, uh, Sam Summers, who's a, a psychologist at, at, at Tufts University, has this great study where he impanels juries from the Michigan uh, jury pool. And he peels off real people who are uh, 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 waiting to be impaneled on a jury. And he creates six-person juries that are either racially diverse or all white, racially homogeneous. Okay, All of them watch the same videotape trial. And what he does is he videotapes their deliberations and he compares the deliberations of many groups 
of all white juries to many groups of diverse juries. And he finds a couple of things that are really fascinating. One thing is the diverse juries end up taking longer. Another is they consider a wider range of case facts. A third is they make fewer inaccurate statements when discussing the case facts. But what I would argue is the most interesting element to this paper, which is not really the headline, is the reason, the reason these diverse juries had these more beneficial decision-making properties was not because of the, the added perspectives or corrections made by these two black jurors who were placed on the diverse juries. It's actually their presence changed how the white people acted because them being there created this systemic change where they were a little bit more careful in thinking, a little bit more deeper, didn't assume that everyone knew or had the same experience as them. And so I take that as emblematic of what diversity can do at scale in an organization or an educational institution. And it's really not just the math of adding perspectives. It changes the climate in ways that allows us to be more introspective, question our assumptions. Um, and, and I think it's, it is healthy. It's hard. Diversity is harder, but it, I think it, it is good for, for rigorous debate and decision-making. And that's really the purpose of a university experience, or at least one of them. It's interesting because it's sort of the opposite of the maybe perceived problem of the fact that people do notice race. You know, the idea that we want to be colorblind because we think that's the more fair approach. The fact that we do notice race maybe becomes a barrier to that. We just try to ignore it. But what you're talking about here is that noticing race and acknowledging that people look different from us and we know that they come from different experiences, seeing that in front of us will cause greater awareness and reflection on the part of people who don't come from those backgrounds, which, uh, you know, case in point, the the research that you're describing right now, um, giving people an opportunity to maybe tap into certain parts of their their thought process that might be a little bit more benign if they didn't have someone there to allow them to be more reflective on that issue. That's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, diversity can be hard. It can be it can be easy. Like, you know, you think of who you gravitate towards at a at a party or an event. People go, somebody who speaks the same language, same religion, same community group, same religious organization, uh, you know, same affiliation of some kind. It's easy. It's predictable. And, and that's OK. But there is something really valuable about interacting with people who are different. And sometimes because it's harder, we encode it as somehow not good. But actually, the functional benefits when we're thinking about brainstorming and innovating and learning uh, are, are, are the evidence is there that diversity really helps us do that. It's just sometimes hard to see that value because people experience it as less predictable or uh, familiar. And, and I think that that's part of the challenge. And it's really on educators and parents, for that matter, to to make sure that people understand that's part of the value. This is a really fascinating discussion for me. Something I would love to get your thoughts on are the the sort of two sides of, you know, an issue here. One is diversity and the other is identity threat. And for me, something that's really come up in the work that I do is noticing how often 
people will use the word diversity or the word diverse as a shorthand for underrepresented minority, right? I'm a black man. That means I'm diverse. You're a white man. That means you're not diverse. And the problem here for me, I think, can't be understated, but I think that people take it for granted a lot. And it's that we're taking something that's as all-inclusive as a concept as diversity, and we're creating this binary where you're either in the group or you're out of the group. And the psychology research shows us when there's two, especially when there are two, the problems that can emerge in terms of conflict. And so I'm really interested in the identity threat that it creates this new shift in the nomenclature where we're calling diversity this, really this shortcut for people of color or gender diversity or something like that. And, you know, really not just the identity threat that it creates, but maybe, and to the point that you were making about the prior research with, uh, with juries, how it keeps certain people from participating in the project of diversity and receiving the benefits that it would confer upon all of us. And so I just, do you have any perspective on on this sort of shifting view that a lot of individuals are taking to diversity? Well, I think you're you're kind of perhaps reflecting on a couple a couple different things that are going on. I think, you know, when I think about diversity, that's a description of a group, right? It's not a description of an individual, right? So diversity is some distribution of differences in a group. Um, and so that's what I think about. And um, I think what you're saying is that people are using the term diversity to signal something else that perhaps that they're not comfortable saying. Uh, is, is that accurate? Right. So that people will essentially say that diversity is everyone but straight white men. And when you do that, then it's no longer diversity in the truest sense of the idea, but it's really just a way to refer to marginalized communities. Well, you know, and I think that's a problem. Um, and I think that, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, what I've seen in organizations is when it comes to talking about diversity, you know, I use um, my, my colleague and friend, Martin Davidson, often provides this container analogy. And he says, really, you know, the job of leadership you have this container and you need to make everyone there feel like they fit in that container. And that's, that's the job. That is, that is the job. And so if you're talking in a way where people say like, Oh, this is not, there's a diversity task force, or there's a discussion about diversity as a white guy, that's not something that I need to attend. It's not about me. It's for, it's for the other people or uh, then you're not, then you're not doing Then You haven't created that container that everyone feels like they can fit inside of. And so you know, these topics are really tough to manage. You know, uh, majority members, uh, white people, white men bring a different constellation of concerns uh, when these issues come up. They may be concerned about uh, being judged as biased. They may feel that their experience is, is irrelevant. They may feel sort of disconnected from these issues. And I think that really, what you're looking for when you're managing at, at, at a large scale is finding a way to talk about these issues where everyone feels like they're part of this and they're not necessarily being blamed, but everyone is part of this system, part of the community. And that's what's working. You really need everyone to be showing up uh, to the meetings physically, but also 
mentally when these topics come up. And, you know, we're living in a world that's only becoming more global, um, more multicultural um, identities are becoming intersectional. And so, you know, when I talk to leaders, whereas maybe 20 years ago, this would be like a nice to have kind of skill. It's a must have skill now because you can't talk about growth and innovation and culture within your organization anymore if you're not able to manage people across differences. And, and, and that's just, that's the reality. And that's the reality of where the future is going as well. There's a really interesting concept of fear and what fear can do to the way that we rationalize different, different ideas. And so one point that you talk about in the paper that I thought was really interesting is when you say, when race is made salient, many whites shift from viewing colorblindness as everyone should have equal outcomes to viewing it as everyone should receive equal treatment, regardless of existing race-based inequalities. You know, and one could argue that this is this focus on equal treatment, despite racial inequality, instead of focusing on equitable outcomes, is exactly what the Supreme Court is doing with the affirmative action decision as well. What it suggests to me is that when race is made salient, uh, as you say, a lot of white people are maybe less sensitive to the fact that historical racism has put a lot of people at different starting points in life, you know, despite the fact that we're each running the same race and trying to reach the same finish line. But I think the reason for that is because the sort of fear, the identity threat that's created when race becomes salient with the notion that I'm not included in that when we're talking about diversity, maybe shifts how people view the concept of fairness when we're talking about uh, processes versus outcomes. And so I guess my question is, you know, what's your perspective on this idea that making race salient might make some white people less concerned with fairness in outcomes and more concerned with perceived fairness in the process leading to the outcome? Many people and are and many white people, um, as research by um, Mike Norton and, and Sam Summers has shown, view racism as a zero sum game. That is that the advantages of one group come at the expense of another. So if you look at some of the data they've captured, what's interesting is that there is a cross-section of people in, in, in the country who believe though in the 50s and 60s, black individuals were more likely to be the targets of discrimination as compared to white people, that the sort of the tables have now turned, uh, turned, so to speak, and that white individuals are more at risk of uh, uh, discrimination as compared to black individuals. And I think um, that's really very relevant to the mental models that some people are bringing to issues of affirmative action, to selection decisions. There is this concern that race is unfairly being used in the context of these decisions that will disadvantage um, the types of outcomes that white individuals may or may not get in those contexts. And so I, I think this is a really sticky situation. And I think that the zero-sum mindset is not particularly helpful. Um, it goes back to the container analogy. And I think that um, when we're in a world where we're thinking about we're in two different groups and my gains only come at your losses, um, it's going to be really hard 
to for people to 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 see a joint solution where we can value them. I think it is important to treat people fairly in both uh, the way they're evaluated, but you must do that with some awareness of the distribution of outcomes as they are today. Um, and so I think that you know we can we can chew gum and and walk at the same time is is the way that I think about it. Do you think that people who have some of the perspectives that you're talking about, uh, white people who think we ourselves are now being discriminated against because of our race, do you think that perspective comes at the cost of appreciating how historical injustice uh, plays out in the the places that people start in life today? I don't know. Um, I don't know exactly. But what I what I you know from what I've seen of the, the research out there and my own data. I think that people are concerned with different aspects. And it's not always, by the way, a white minority thing. There's really stark political divides here that cut across um, race and other identity features here. And, you know, in some of the new data that we have, um, you know, what's interesting is that we see that liberals, people who sort of self-identify as liberals versus conservatives, talk about very different concerns when it comes to um, promoting diversity in the context of selection decisions, like the one the Supreme Court is talking about um, in a university or um, in in a workplace. And and what we find is that you know liberals are really concerned with fairness, and when they're thinking about fairness, they're thinking about making sure that disadvantaged, traditionally disadvantaged groups have. Uh, fair shot and there's not negative bias against them in decisions. Um, on average, we see conservatives are much more concerned about fairness of race being used in a way that is unfair to traditional meritocratic ideals like performance and um, results and et cetera. And so what's interesting is both groups are concerned about fairness, but they're sort of thinking about different fairness in different ways. And that's sort of ongoing research. But I but I think that um, we have very different mental models or ways of thinking about this that are out there right now. And there's quite a big divide in the country. It seems a bit like the difference between equality and equity. I don't know if you've ever seen that graphic of the three people standing in front of the fence and they're at different heights and you give them a box at the same level and it doesn't create a fair outcome, but you you give them a box that accords with their height so that they can each see over the fence, and that is what equity is. Uh, to me, it is what you talk about when you describe outcomes versus processes, and um, it's an interesting idea because there is, you know, merit to making sure that a certain process is is fair, but you know, fairness I think in context is really what's useful here. We don't live in a black box. We live in the context of history and what the implications of that are. And I think all of that's important when we try to understand what it is that is is fair. And maybe there's no perfect answer to it, but I do think it's interesting the way that the ideological divide happens as you're describing between more liberal-minded and more conservative-minded individuals and where the emphasis is placed based on which one of those sides you tend to land on. I think that's absolutely right. And, and I just, on a more positive note, what I would say is those same data do not suggest one reason that people often have is why would liberals and conservatives be so divided on something like race in selection? 
And, you know, one reason it comes to people's head is, well, they have just different values. And maybe it's just that on average, conservatives don't care for diversity or egalitarianism in the same way that liberals. We actually don't find strong evidence for that's the cause of the divide. What we find stronger evidence for is that they have different ideas about how promoting diversity will affect a meritocracy, different fairness-related concerns. And why I think that's really important is that if somebody just doesn't like the idea of diversity or doesn't like the idea of reaching out to disadvantaged communities, that's really hard to change that kind of behavior. That's a deep-seated value. It's hard to change people. But if it's a concern about fairness, that actually might be more actionable because it, it suggests that even conservative-minded individuals might be okay with a number of different diversity-promoting activities, again, earlier in the sourcing of where you get the applicants from and talking to people about how to be fair and interviewing and talking to them. But they would just want the final decision to be blind, for example. But they'd be okay with diversity in a general sense. And I think, you know, a lot more research to come here, but I think those data I take as a bit more optimistic um, because it doesn't require changing uh, somebody's deep-seated values or principles, but really targeting a very specific concern that may be underlying this divide. Evan, one of the solutions that you identify in your paper is the possibility of multiculturalism as an alternative to colorblindness and some of the problems that might emerge because of colorblindness. Uh, and so I'm curious to know, uh, what is multiculturalism and and what do you think the benefits of it are? So admittedly, multiculturalism, I can tell you in a general sense, but a lot of the devil will end up being in the details. Multiculturalism is sort of the counterpoint to colorblindness, which again is this idea that we should minimize or even eliminate attention to weight placed on differences. Multiculturalism says that we should not only see, but maybe recognize, embrace, and sort of bring positive attention to the value of these differences um, in a cultural sense, in maybe group contexts. It's the benefits to making us better decision makers. Um, and I think that at a at a ideological level, there is evidence that multiculturalism can make both people feel more comfortable and uh, make interactions go more smooth. Question is, how do educators and leaders end up really implementing that in the day-to-day -day policies and processes? And certainly as we're thinking about the Supreme Court case, you know, how would you integrate multiculturalism into a process that in the end really needs to be blind in the final decision? And I think the way to think about that is sort of this example that I've been giving all along. You could be multicultural in a hiring process, let's say, because you're attending to the fact that your applicants maybe are now all coming from a few different universities and they are people from very similar backgrounds. So you're very much attending to the fact that you want diversity in the pool. And so you're seeking out new applicants from different places. Maybe you're training your team to interview or to think about uh, including applicants from different schools who have different types of experiences, from hardship, uh, indicators of hardship, um, et cetera. 
Now you can do all of those things, which I would argue are aligned with a multicultural approach because they're attending to differences and still have a final decision, presumably, that is blind behind a curtain. I think I think that's where we need to be thinking about as we go to the future. Not is this or that better, but how can we take the benefits of multiculturalism and build them into systems? Think about, you know, well, when should these factors be removed from a decision in a way to bring divides closer? And I, and I, you know, I don't know that there is no situation in which we would want to blind people to identity characteristics. There might be situations in which that would be seen as fair by everyone. And to bring it back to my own research, even people who are liberally minded, who like multiculturalism and want race to be taken into account throughout the process, we have some data suggesting that those folks are okay with a blind decision at the very end of the process if all the steps leading up to it have been very thoughtful in trying to increase awareness of diversity and increase the representation of, of diverse candidates. And so I think these integrated sort of hybrid ways of thinking about it are a more fruitful way to, to, to go research-wise and practically. Evan, I'm curious where your research is taking you now in terms of uh, multiculturalism, colorblindness, uh, interactions between people of different races in general. So, so one of the projects that we're currently working on, a very large project, has to do with some of these very themes we're talking about. And we are looking at how voting diversity affects people's beliefs that there will be a meritocratic system of selection. And we are looking at the very stark political divide in the beliefs that we see there. And also, we are, we are testing out large-scale interventions that can do what was thought unthinkable, which is get liberals and conservatives to agree on the role that race should play in selection. And so, uh, and a lot of what we're doing here is trying to, um, you know, in some sense, put aside this notion that this is a question of good apples and bad apples. You have people who are, you know, pro-diversity, and you have people who are biased or racist, and that's the problem. And again, I think that's not an accurate depiction of most liberals and conservatives. Certainly, you can have uh, certain extreme groups. That's not an accurate depiction. And I think what's much more fruitful is thinking about ways to bridge this divide. And that's really where the research is going. And I think specifically, this idea of what is merit and what is meritocracy is such a loaded and tricky element. And you know, for many people right now, when you say as a school or as an organization, we're gonna promote diversity, there's almost a knee-jerk reaction of like, oh wait, so are you lowering quality? Or is it gonna really be a fair system? And we are trying really to get to the bottom of that. What is that belief about? Is it true? And how can we get people to think about the role of diversity uh, in a similar way across this political divide? Dr. Evan Applebaum is the Associate Professor and Research Director of the HR Policy Institute at the Questrom School of Business at Boston University. Evan, this has been a very informative conversation for me. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on the DEI podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. The DEI podcast at Notre Dame Law School is produced by Notre Dame Studios. 
Every episode, we sit down with important voices in law, culture, society, and business to talk about issues that touch all of us. If you liked what you heard today, become a subscriber and get notified every time we upload an episode. And tune in next time for another great conversation on issues that touch us all. Until then, take care.